2024 marks the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force with celebrations and events planned to honor those who have served and those serving today while inspiring the next generation of RCAF personnel. Visit rcaf2024arc.ca to learn about the RCAF's past and current fleet of more than 200 aircraft, plus the many planned activities including air shows, e-gaming tournaments, the RCAF Run, Canadian Tulip Festival, and STEM activities for youth. Then, on April 1st, in recognition of the positive impact the RCAF has had worldwide, businesses, cities, and landmarks around the world will be illuminating in Air Force Blue to celebrate the occasion. Join the fun. Illuminate your residence or place of work in blue to show your support while joining a world record attempt for the most landmarks illuminated within 24 hours. And when you do, share a picture on social media using hashtag RCAF2024, hashtag RCAF100, or hashtag Your Air Force. Again, RCAF2024ARC.ca to learn more about the Royal Canadian Air Force Centennial. As a service member, we never leave a colleague behind. It's important when we make a promise to our service members that we keep that promise. And so for future generations, when they are towing that line, knowing that they have the entire nation behind their back to support them and their family should they fall in battle. Did you know that more than 16 million Americans served during World War II, and that today, eight decades later, more than 72,000 are still listed as missing in action? Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, and joining me to discuss one of the agencies working to help bring our boys back home is Derek Abbey, PhD. Cosmo, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here, Jello. Good. Well, I'm really looking forward to unpacking Project Recover, and we have a video we're going to show about it, but what can you tell us before we take a look at this trailer? So Project Recover is a nonprofit organization. It's been around for three decades. That our focus is on searching for, locating, and ultimately repatriating Americans missing in action from our previous wars. And I mentioned 72,000 from World War II, but what, there's over 81,000 in all the conflicts? 81,000 from World War II up to present time. Wow. More than 81,000 still missing. Okay. Well, I don't think anything better captures what your organization and your efforts are all about than this trailer. So let's take a look, and then we'll come back. Here we go. This connection to the past, it's a strange feeling. These are not sterile pieces of steel or aluminum. They're what's left of people who are fighting for their lives. An MIA family never puts away the loss of somebody who hasn't been able to return home. It leaves a void in your, your mind and heart. It gives something back for the sacrifices that have been made. It's just very important to me. It seems to me like it would be looking for the smallest needle in the largest haystack. You're looking for that one angle, that one curve that you know is not natural, and you hope you find it. My grandfather's disappearance was something that we did not talk about. How do I thank these people? The only thing that I could do is join them and hope that we can do this for somebody else.
you never forget your comrades. These family members that are missing, we can't forget them. They're, they're heroes. Every military man that fought in wars, they should be brought home. They've been missing for a long time. If it takes a uh, hundred lifetimes, we're gonna get them back. Okay, wow, that's really powerful, and I look forward to discussing everything about that here over the next however long it takes us. <laughs> but before we do, let's get to know you a little bit. Where are you from? What got you interested in the military, and what are you doing today? So I'm from the Northwest. I grew up in and around Seattle, Washington. was born in Seattle, lived everywhere between Everett and Tacoma, for those that are familiar with the area. was raised by a single mom, didn't graduate high school, and when I was 13 years old, she unexpectedly passed away from a brain aneurysm. So as you can imagine, I was a teenager without a rudder or sail. And so when it was time to figure out what I was going to do with my life, I didn't have an answer. And so ultimately, I ran away to the Marine Corps, found a system that I needed, some structure that I needed, some discipline that I needed, and a system I could succeed in. And really invested in what it meant to be a Marine and wasn't planning on making it a career, but it turned into a 23-year career. So, Outstanding. Well, yeah. but you didn't stay enlisted. So No, no. I enlisted right out of high school. So I was a communicator initially. And after oh. my first enlistment, actually, my, my first duty station was Marine Corps Air Station El Toro, which oh, no yes. longer exists. I know. And you used to watch the Hornets in the pattern back then, but never fathomed that I'd find myself in the cockpit one day. But uh you know, after my first tour, the Marine Corps saw something to me and decided to send me to a commissioning program. So I was selected for a program called MESEP. They sent me to college for four years. I went to Oregon State University, finished a couple degrees in history, and was actually commissioned a ground officer on the back end of that. Went to the basic school, and while I was in the basic school, one night a lieutenant came to my room and said, do you have any interest in flying at all? I was kind of like, I don't know. And he's like, I need to know if you have any interest in flying at all. So we went back and forth for a little while. And I'm like, sure, I guess I have interest in flying. And he says, all right, tomorrow at 1800, you need to be in this room. <laughs> and so I had to go take the aviation aptitude exam and went in, passed. The next morning I came in, they said, hey, you passed the test. Go take your flight physical, pass that. And they said, you're on your way to flight school. And actually, we had some back and forth for a while. I wasn't sure if this was what I wanted to do. But uh, they said, well, the Marine Corps wants you to do that. So we're sending you down to flight school. You pass the test. You're going. And then I committed to it. I was selected for a Naval Flight Officer contract, went down there, and I said, well, if this is what I'm going to do, I want F-18s. So I worked hard through flight school and, and got what I wanted, West Coast Hornets. And while I was in flight school, a school I didn't want to be in at first was when 9-11 happened. Oh, wow. And so uh, it's kind of like, you know, I've been in the Marine Corps for a while now, and I'm missing my chance to prove myself. And little did I know that would come many times over in the future. But, um, yeah, I went through flight school, got selected for the RAG, came out here to Miramar, went through the RAG at 101, was selected to go to 121. Me and two other guys were doing well. They kind of fast-tracked us through. They knew uh, Iraq was getting ready to kick off, and so the three of us joined 121, immediately deployed to Kuwait, started flying Southern Watch missions, and wow. was over Basra when uh, OAF kicked off. Did three tours in the Hornet over there, and uh, another one to the Far East in 121, but also 242 out of Miramar. And then when I was done with that tour, I went back to the ground side and became a plank holder with Marine Special Operations Command up at Camp Pendleton, 1st Raider Battalion. And we kind of built out what is Marine Special Operations now, took down the Force Reconnaissance flag, put up the MARSOC flag, and <laughs> figured that out. So I ran around with Smurf Ninjas for a few years and mm-hmm. 
then the Marine Corps invested in me some more, sent me back to school to get an advanced degree, and then I did the really sexy job of running the schoolhouse as my last tour. I ran the Marine Corps, trained the trainer school as my twilight tour, and retired in 2014. 2014 as yeah. a major? Yep. And uh, how many flight hours did you end up with? Only about 1,300 okay. in, the, in the jet. So I yeah. had an extended first tour yeah. in the Hornet, and okay. you know, when it was time to go back, I was kind of figuring out, do I want to go back to the jet or do I want to stay in the special operations community? And honestly, I was leaning towards the special operations community, and then I was selected for advanced degree program, and I had to have that honest conversation with myself. I've been in for 17 years, and I'm like, well, I'm probably closer to the end than I am to the beginning, and this extra degree is probably going to help me yeah. out. And so okay. I took it. Yeah. Fantastic. I have a similar story about standing in El Toro. I was outside the fence line. Oh. I was a student at UC Irvine. Oh, wow. 1988 yeah. to 90. And I was trying to find my way into being a fighter pilot, and I didn't have anything planned at the time. And I would ride my bicycle over instead of studying and just watch the jets wow. whimsically. And uh, I ended up even going to a Marine recruiter's office, and I was a signature away on the, uh, what was it called, the uh, platoon leaders class. Wow, yeah. And I just I found myself saying, you know what, I respect the Marines, but I just don't see myself as one. <laughs> and I think it was a good decision, but again, it takes nothing away. In fact, I saved you all from having me <laughs> amongst your ranks. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then I also went through, uh, I went back to El Toro when I went through 101. So that was before it closed. I it would have been really cool yeah. to be assigned back at El Toro yeah. and been able to fly out of that base. But, you know, I think the Marine Corps made out pretty well when we got Miramar. I think we, we ended up on the better we, side of that deal. <laughs> I had the uh, the skipper and the opso of VMFAT 101 and, and on your side of the table there when that squadron sundown recently. Yeah. And so, yeah, we, we talked about that gift. So you're, yeah. you're welcome, too, yeah. if I may speak on behalf of the Navy. <laughs> so I want to ask what you're doing now, but I think probably maybe a better question is getting back to Project Recover. Yeah. How did that whole thing come about? Because... I believe that kind of leads to some of the things you did after the Marine Corps and what you're doing now. So tell me that story. And I think you hinted at this on the phone the other day when we were talking. But for everyone else, go ahead and give me that how, how that happened. Yeah, I, I got started with Project Recover. What was the Bent Prop Project? We were initially Bent called Prop. The, the Bent Prop Project okay. was the original name of the organization. And I was in VMFA 121, had just come back from a deployment. And one day I'm in the, the ready room and the phone rings and I was a historical officer for the squadron. I had a history degree, so I guess that qualified me as that. And so whoever the duty officer was like, hey, Cosmo here, you take the call. And I get on, and there's a gentleman on the other line. His name was George Biranek. And he says, hey, I'm trying to gather information for World War II veterans from 121. Do you have any information? We don't have any context from the World War II generation, but why? What are you, what are you doing? And I said, well, every year we, we do a reunion at different places around the world, and this year it's in Indiana. And I said, well, um, I don't have any information, but can I come to the reunion? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, come on out. And so me and another guy took a jet out on a cross country for the weekend, went out and met the World War II cadre. And, you know, they're like, oh, man, tell us about Iraq and F-18s. And we're like, who cares about that? Tell us about, yeah. you know, World War II and Corsairs. That's, and they're like, who cares about that? But it, it was really cool to connect across time, mm -hmm. you know, that, if you wouldn't look at the wrinkles on people's faces and, you know, who was younger and who was older, you would just assume everybody was the same age and all in the same squadron at the same time. It was really neat to connect. But it was then that they said, hey, you need to meet this gentleman named Pat Scannon. He's doing this work overseas. He's searching for Americans missing in action from our previous wars to include members of the squadron. And I had heard something about that. And Pat and I had missed each other by 20 minutes, I think, that year. But since I had joined him, I said, let's do the reunion in San Diego next year. Old squadron, new squadron. We had just built a heritage room or a bar in our squadron called the Foss Room, Joe Foss. And 
they came out, and that was the first time Pat and I met. And he invited me to be in the organization. It seemed like the right thing to do as far as uh, it aligned with my values. And at the time, they were doing one mission a year to Palau in the South Pacific, searching the jungles and the waters for those that are missing in conflicts that took place around that country. So I agreed to be in the group, and uh, I was deploying quite a bit, so I couldn't head out on my first mission right away. So I was taking a little bit of time, but came back from one deployment, unpacked my sea bag, packed a suitcase, and headed to Palau to continue the mission, and was part of having a first MIA discovery. For me, that year, we found a site associated with an MIA, and it was a Marine Corsair, and it was a Marine from my squadron. From 121? From 121. Wow. Is that what it was called during World War II? Yeah, it was VMF 121, but still the same squadron, the World War II reunion I had went to. It was a member of their squadron. And what was crazy that year, I just got goosebumps. I've told that story many times (laughs) over, but it just doesn't get old, as you can imagine. So the timing was crazy because while we're there, we get an email from Walt Meyer, who was the CEO of 121 during World War II. He lived outside of San Francisco, and his family is... Actually, it was from his family. He said, hey, Walt's turning 90 this year. We want you guys to come and join him for his birthday party. And I said, well, unfortunately, we're out of the country, but we'd love to come up and visit with Walt when we get back because we've got some great news to share with him. And so yeah. they're like, yes, come on up. And so we did. When we got back from uh, Palau, we were able to go up and join Walt in his living room and say happy birthday, but also share with him that we found one of his missing Marines. That so, is amazing. Yeah. So I want to ask you an obvious and probably stupid question, and that is, why does this matter? But, but even before yeah. you answer that, I mean, again, it's, it's pretty obvious, but I think I have to hope one of the answers to that question is for young people that are signing up, I think it speaks volumes that we say to them, look, if you fall on the field of battle, you won't be forgotten. Yeah. It might take a long time, but we will try and everything we can to come find you. But there's got to be more than that because there's families, there's squadron mates, there's so much more. But why does someone pursue this? Well, why does somebody pursue it? That's, that's an individual. That's my answer to that question. And then there's there's so many different layers to it, as yeah. you've already kind of outlined. For me, you know, it, it's the right thing to do. As a service member, we never leave a colleague, comrade, fellow service member, fellow Marine, whatever service you're in, behind. And we, as those that are serving, are tasked with that promise, right? The promise that we make as a collective to that individual and their family when they don the cloth of our nation and swear an oath to the Constitution, it's the right thing to do. And personally, you know, I had the capability of doing this work. I wasn't sure, you know, how I would support it, but I just put my name in the hat and said, I'm going to do what I can. Never fathom 20 years later, I'd be sitting here talking about all the work that we've done over the last few decades. But it has an incredible impact. You know, if you're just looking at the value side of it, it's important when we make a promise as Americans to our service members that we keep that promise or do everything that we can mm-hmm. to keep that promise. And so for future generations, when they are towing that line, knowing that they have the entire nation behind their back to support them and their family should they fall in battle. So that part is important today and will be important for all the days to come that we keep our word and that we do have their back. But then when you get to witness the impact of it, it just allows you to keep on driving forward with the mission. It's it's absolutely incredible and it has an impact from the individual level to the family, to the community, to the nation as a whole. Some of them are intuitive and others are not as obvious, but the individual, I kind of already mentioned it, from that service member, whether they're active duty or veteran, you know, hey, you're impacted when somebody's missing or lost, and, you know, we're tasked with that mission, and and so that can be a weight. And so when somebody's returned, the mission's been accomplished, and you can move forward for those families. 
it doesn't matter if it's been a day or 80 years that their loved one's been missing. It's just as important. It doesn't matter if they knew them firsthand or they're three generations, four generations removed. And so when somebody's returned, those answers to what happened to their loved ones are finally provided to questions that they've just had for far too long. And the healing process and grieving process is allowed to move forward. And we've seen it happen over and over and over again. And then one thing that's really amazing to witness is the families come together, sometimes family members that I've never met, and then the community around them just organically gathers and holds them. It's a memorial, but at the same time, it's very much a celebration. Mm-hmm. I had a colleague that has worked with us for a long time that says it's a second wave of impact for that service member as well. So you think about World War II and all the freedoms and everything that we have that mm-hmm. we get to experience every single day because of the sacrifice that was made by that generation. Mm-hmm. Well, when they return, healing occurs in our community and it's a second wave of impact for that service yeah. members, and it's pretty amazing to witness. And then all the way up to the national level where our nation made a promise to that family and that individual, and now that promise is kept. And so it impacts the entire country from the individual level all the way up to the community level. I mean, it impacts us. I say it's, it's pretty obvious to see how this is life-changing for these families, but those that are within our organization, when they bear witness to that, and we've been invited to bear witness and be with them during these moments, it's life-changing to each and every one of our members as well. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of veterans in our group. It's not required to be a veteran, but more than half of our members are veterans or first responders. They're just drawn to the work. And there's a, this perceived loss of value when they take the uniform off or purpose or whatever it happens to be. And I say our, our members don't experience that because you get to witness and see the impact that your mm-hmm. work is creating. And so all that time in the jungle or sweating on a hot barge or whatever it happens to be overseas, all the blood, sweat, and tears and time and effort is worth yeah. it when you see the impact that's created when somebody comes home. I read on the Project Recover website that there are something like 5 million, I think, Gold Star families. Yeah, we, Gold we Star family the, members. Yeah, we crossed the numbers. And it is. It's about 5 million family members across the nation. And I have to think the only thing worse than losing a loved one in battle is not knowing. Yeah. That uncertainty. So you're really, your organization is providing that closure. Yes. And that's one of the things that's not as intuitive for a lot of people. But, you know, mo- I think almost all of us have lost somebody that we loved. And we know how painful that is. Mm-hmm. And But when somebody goes missing, there's certain things that don't occur. One, you don't have that person anymore. But every family holds on to hope that they somehow survived, they were rescued, they're going to come home, they're living another life, they have amnesia, all these different stories that are made up to fill that gap. And then another thing that doesn't occur is role changes don't occur. So when somebody leaves your family or they pass away, everybody acknowledges it, and it's not always talked about, but role shifts occur. Well, when you're hoping that somebody's going to come back, those don't occur because you're holding on to hope that they're uh-huh. going to come back. And that grieving process is interrupted. And so we've just seen it over and over. And it's coined. There's a term for it called ambiguous loss. <laughs> and now we've seen, because we've had the opportunity to work with so many different families, how this has an impact after generations of loss. And so, yeah, people that have never met their loved one, they see that shrine, they hear the stories, they very much become a myth. It's a very large part of their family. And then when somebody comes home or, and they're no longer missing, you see the grieving process pick up, even if they never met them yeah. before. And then the healing occurs. They're allowed to move forward from that loss and, and hopefully in a better way. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine, but I will say I lost my two-year-older brother on uh, June 2021. 
And uh, he and I were best friends. And I had the chance to go to the hospital and, and see him after. And for me, that was like, there's no question in my mind. I mean, that was closure. It still hurts every day, but it was closure. But yeah, I, I'm just sitting here imagining, well, what if he was somewhere, I'm told, far away, or there was the circumstances were unknown? I mean, what would I do? Where would I go? How long would I hold hope? I mean, yeah. again, he's only a couple of years older. He theoretically could live a lot longer. So yeah, I, man, I can't understand, I don't think, but I'd like to think I can at least feel a sense of that just having served like I did and like you did. And, and that's amazing that you were able to be a part of it. Did the Marine Corps support you doing that or did you have to take leave or how did that work? Just curious. Yeah. So when I started this, I was active duty yeah. and I used to just save up my leave, budget a part of my oh. expenses every year. And sometimes I'd get a CO that would be like, you know, submit your leave papers and we'll see if we process we'll them just to make it, sure. Yeah. But other times they're like, oh, they just charge me to leave. But it, it's fine. It was something very, very important to me and I wanted yeah. to do. So that's just what I did. I budgeted it every year and I saved up that leave. And that's right. what I would do on my leave time would go to the jungles and the, the waters of Palau. At the time, that was the only place we were working, one, one mission a year okay. in the nation of Palau. And spent my time over there. And well, A lot of fighting occurred there. It did. Why is it, though, that a private organization, you said at the beginning, a 501c3, yeah. why is it that that is happening and not maybe a government agency? There is a government agency. So okay. the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency is the agency that's but tasked. in Hawaii? They have a lab in Hawaii. Okay. So the, some restructures occurred. They used to be solely based in Hawaii, but okay. now D.C., Hawaii, they have a lab in Nebraska as well. Okay. So that's the Department of Defense agency that's tasked with accounting for our, our missing in action. And, and so I liken it to the VA, right? We have the VA that's tasked with serving our veterans, but there's also a lot of nonprofits that help them with that and support and augment that mission. And, and that's exactly what we do. So we're a small organization, very agile, and we can maximize resources. And, and we're an official partner of uh, DPAA. So they reach out to us from time to time to execute missions on their behalf. And we're the only non-government organization, though, that is fully vertical in the sense that we do everything from proactive research to search missions, documentation missions, and recovery missions in both the underwater environment and the terrestrial environment. And uh, I think we do every every piece of that mission pretty well, too. Uh, Sounds like it. So it's not a competition, clearly, between no. you and – you said DPAA, what that means? DPAA, again? which is the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. Okay. Yeah. Long, yeah, long yeah. name. Okay. <laughs> so probably there's a good exchange of information. Hopefully you're not duplicating effort, that type of thing. We work on it. You yeah. know, you know, it's it's working with big government, so okay. it, it can be improved, but we're always working to improve it. And, and we're very proud of being a trusted agent to work with them, it's something that we take a lot of pride in. And, uh, and we were happy that when they created the – capacity to have public-private partnerships, that they reached out to us to be a partner. They weren't able to do that until 2015. Prior to that, we would just do all of our work. We'd write a report, and then we'd submit it to the government, and hopefully they would take action on it. And back then, we weren't doing the recovery part of the mission. We were doing everything up to that. And now we've added recovery to our mission, and and we work hand-in-hand with DPA as much as we can. Can we go through a scenario where, I don't know if it would either be I don't know how this works, but is it maybe that you think somebody's missing in a certain spot and you go looking for that person? Or maybe you just know that there was a vicious battle somewhere and let's just go see what we can see. But talk yeah. us through a scenario where ultimately the results you're looking for, which is that closure, the the reparation, I guess we're Repatriation, yeah. Repatriation. The, uh, it all starts in, in the bottom of some archive is the way that I, okay. I like to say it. So we're always doing research 
And so doing proactive research, building cases, and we, we maintain an archive. So we have a full-time historian that, that works on this all the time. And right now our archives probably have about 700 cases associated with more than 3,000 missing Americans. And that's actionable information. That's not something like they were last seen heading west over the Pacific. You know, that's just not good enough information for us to take action on. Okay. And so we'll take those cases and we'll prioritize those based on highest likelihood of success in the sense that can we access the area? Do we have equipment available? Do we have enough information that we can minimize the search area that increases our likelihood of success? We'll prioritize things that way, and then we'll execute missions based on that. So we'll go do search missions on land or in water, given that information, hopefully find a site. Once we find a site, investigate it, document it, prepare for recovery, and then execute a recovery mission. One thing that we do also is something that we call campaigning. So in a place that had a lot of fighting and there's a lot of MIAs in that area, we'll try and focus a lot of work there because we can focus on multiple missions at the same time. We're a nonprofit, so we want to maximize our resources, and sometimes it takes a lot to get to the other side of the world with our equipment. So Palau is one of those places. Chuk is another place. Denmark, Italy, Croatia. And so we want to go back to those places. And not only does it help us increase our likelihood of success, but allows us to build a relationship and rapport with the host nation. So the first time we show up, there's always like, what are you guys doing here? Mm -hmm. You're searching for gold or you're doing something. And then once they realize that, you know, we're searching for people, then there's a, a values overlap. And almost every country that we've worked in, it very much becomes their mission. And when you think about war-torn countries, it's their way of healing as well. Yeah. And so very much because their mission, Palau is a perfect example. Once they realized what we were doing, they're like, well, this totally aligns with what we believe in because when somebody dies in Palau, they're returned to the island from where their mother's from, and that's where they're buried and the ceremonies are held. So they it very much became their mission. And so that's kind of what drives our mission. And then DPAA can come to us at any time and say, we want you to do any part of that entire mission, whether it's search, research, documentation or recovery, and then we'll execute on, on their behalf as well. But that's kind of how we approach it. You know, we, we get information all the time from families as well. So our, our historians always in the archive gathering information, but then families and veterans and others will reach out to us and give us information. Our policy is that we don't reach out to families actively because we don't want to create any false hope. But if they reach out to us, we don't keep any secrets from them. Okay. So if we have information, we share it with them. Of course, we gather any information that they have, and we create a case around it. And then when we're in these countries and we've built a rapport, now they know who we are. They know what we're doing. So when we arrive, oftentimes, we're like, hey, there's a hunter over here that has seen something in the jungle, or this fisherman is always catching their net on something out here. <laughs> Can you investigate it? Or we saw aluminum or something over here. And so it's really interesting to see how the cases continue to grow. And when we do those missions, especially for going to one of those campaigns where there's a lot of losses in that area, you know, depending on the information that emerges, we can pivot and make that a priority if it looks like it's going to be a higher likelihood of success. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. What is it, though, that broad Project Recover brings to the scene? Is it the able-bodied people with their willingness to do what it takes? Or is there also an element of the technology or the know-how or some other maybe uh, I don't know what you would call it, but some yeah. skill or, or attribute, or if it was a business, you might call it a, you know, right? Your yeah. differential, uh, yeah. uh, what's it called? Uh, anyway, wrong, yeah. wrong part of my so brain. The, is well, the answer is both. Yeah. Uh, we okay. do bring incredible people 
that are willing to work on this mission. Most of our folks are all volunteers okay. that have a day job, and they're just bringing their expertise, which is all sorts of different expertise. And then we also have protocols and technologies that, that we can apply to this mission that are constantly improving and state-of-the-art. So our primary partners include the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the University of Delaware. The biggest things that they bring is underwater technology. Mm-hmm. So before we started working with them, you know, we were using basic scuba, get online, underwater, gridding out searches under the water, and that can take decades and decades and decades. Mm-hmm. And then they show up and we learn about their automated underwater vehicles and how they can use side-scan sonar and other technologies to map the ocean floor. Well, they can go out and grid the ocean floor a lot faster with these robots, and then we can sit in a dry room like this and look at the screen and go, oh, that looks like a point of interest, that looks like a point of interest, and then dive to investigate those points instead of spending all that time underwater. It's faster, it's safer, all sorts of different things, and it just launched us into the future, that's for sure. And that's just some of the technologies, and they're constantly improving. So we started working with them in about the 2012 era, and when you see the film in there, they talk about it, and that that part of the film was filmed in 2014, 2015, and Eric Terrell at Scripps is talking about, well, we can do 20 square kilometers this year. And the resolution back then was about a meter, which was incredible. But today, we can do about 100 square kilometers in the same amount of time, and the resolution is down to a centimeter. So I was just up with another colleague, Mark Moline, from the University of Delaware last year in Maine, and we were looking at the side scan sonar for a naval aviator that was lost off the coast of Kenny Bunkport. And we could see the lobster traps on the ocean floor and the lines going up to the surface, <laughs> holding them. Wow. And now that technology is being applied to finding lost lobster and crab traps that are having a negative impact on the environment and the fishing industry so they can go collect them. So it's neat to see this ripple effect. But yeah. we bring that technology and that capability that's constantly improving. And as you can imagine, it's better to have that technology at the university. One, it's very expensive. If I was trying to maintain it, we wouldn't be able to advance it as quickly, nor maintain it and all those things. So it's nice to have it in um, the universities where they work. And they are world-renowned in their fields, and now they're applying the expertise to this mission. Additionally, we partner with Legion Undersea Services, which is mostly former Navy divers. It's led by two former Navy divers. Mm -hmm. One of them, at least, worked on this mission when he was active duty. He actually worked on a site that we found, and it was a Navy recovery. And he left the Navy after retiring, and it's like, well, I can continue to do this mission. And so they are all in. And so when it comes to our underwater recovery capability, it's commercial diver salvage work. It's not just scuba divers down mm-hmm. there because you're lifting up pieces of aircraft, cutting through it, you know, doing some pretty varsity work at some significant depths. And so those guys bring their expertise and have really set the gold standard of what it means to be non-government organization yeah. executing recovery operations for MIAs. There's nobody does it to the level that we're doing it. Attention veterans, obtaining the right medical evidence could make a significant impact on your disability rating. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with paperwork or you may have no idea how to get started. If your disability rating is at or below 90%, allveteran.com is here to help. All Veteran is a powerful resource that can help you collect the needed medical evidence to support your service-connected disability and potentially increase your rating. Simply visit info.allveteran.com forward slash jello and fill out the form. It only takes a minute. Soon after, you'll be connected with medical specialists who have helped thousands of veterans gather the evidence needed to accurately increase their disability rating. No hassle, just a straightforward way to accurately support your VA disability rating. 
an increased rating may be easily within your reach thanks to this valuable resource committed to ensuring you receive the benefits you rightfully earned. Get started today by visiting info.allveteran.com forward slash J-E-L-L-O. This is one question I have as far as 80 years is a long time. Salt is not nice to anything. Mm -hmm. You see these videos that we just did of what aircraft look like, and you can still sort of see that they're aircraft, and that's metal. Organisms don't do real well. If you find an aircraft, how do we know that it's maybe a certain pilot? It's a great question. So, you know, it starts looking at that side scan sonar. Hey, we found something that looks like it's man-made. It's never the perfect airplane on the on. We've seen some of those, but rarely <laughs> is it a yeah. look like an airplane on the ocean floor. So then we have to investigate it, like, oh, that's a coral head or something like that. Or when we do find something, this is crumpled aluminum, it's a crash site. And then we have to go through the process of, okay, it's man-made, it's an aircraft, what kind of aircraft is it, which aircraft is it, and then we can... So once we get to what type of aircraft it is, now we're really starting to narrow things down because we can start triangulating data. Oh, it's a... TBM Avenger, okay, well, there was three of them lost in this area, so it could be one of three. Mm. Can we find the nameplate? Once we find the nameplate, we know exactly which aircraft it is. And at that point, we know exactly which crew was associated with it. Are they MIA? Are all of them MIA or one or two or whatever it happens to be? Um, So that's how we narrow it down. We start gathering as much information as you can. Sometimes you can't fly in the nameplate, so can you get enough information that we know this is the plane? Even if we can get it down to two planes, depending on how many crew members it is, you know, then we can get enough samples that if we do recover remains, we know who it is. But so that's how we kind of start to funnel that information to determine exactly who's associated with that site. And then when we do recovery, you hit it on the head, you know, it's more recovering remains. And most of the time, 80 years later, all that's left is skeletal remains. And so we're looking for those human remains to recover, but also any artifacts that can assist. Boots or dog tags, maybe? Boots, dog tags, rings, watches, life-saving gear that can tell you if it's a multi-crew aircraft, which position or things like that. Uh So all that information helps. And then all the artifacts and the human remains are recovered. Everything else stays where it's at, and that's repatriated or brought back to the United States. And then at that point, even though we have all that information, the identification is done in a lab blindly, either in Nebraska or Hawaii. And they'll use... DNA analysis, but they'll also use dental records, skeletal analysis. So this person broke their left arm when they were seven, and we have a left arm here, and there's evidence of a heel of a break. That's more information that they can use. And all those artifacts, of course, if there's a ring or dog tags or other things like that, commingle with the remains, and that helps. And they need at least two pieces of information. So it can't just be DNA. Not just one. But usually DNA is a pretty good one. (laughs) But how do they get that, right? Uh, Do they have to find someone downstream in the family? Yeah, so then there's the genealogy that happens behind it, and we'll provide a report for that as well that can have the closest next of kin. And that's when the family will get a hint if they didn't know anything was going on. Mm -hmm. The Department of Defense will reach out and ask for a DNA sample, and they provide that, and then they'll use that to determine this is your loved one or your relative and And then once the identification is done, it's as if the person was killed in action the day before. The case is turned over to a casualty affairs officer Uh, for the branch. They'll notify the family, and then the family will memorialize their loved one however they determine. Yeah. And we've seen, again, in that trailer and elsewhere, videos of the caskets coming home finally, you know. Yeah. What is it like, though, if you've been there, when the remains are being retrieved at the site? That must be pretty sobering. 
It's life-changing. I've had the honor of bearing witness to many uh, repatriations, memorials. In September 11th of 2023 was the most recent one. Wilbur Mitz was put to rest in uh, Seaside, California with his family, and we were able to join him there. Uh, And a crewmate of his, Anthony DePetta, the July before that was laid to rest in New Jersey. And we were invited by the family to, to join them in those memorials. And yeah, it, you know, at that point, it, it's very, very emotional. I wish I could accurately put into words mm-hmm. all the emotions that, that hit you. But you get to spend that time with the family and you get to witness the impact that this work has on these families. And if there was any question of continuing the work at that point, there is no question because mm-hmm. how many people get to see something like that where like I put in all this effort and I'm not sure really what's happening with it. Well, here you get to see, mm-hmm. you know, I put in all this effort. And I don't, I don't care if you're you know, not in the field at all, but, you know, you, you were doing the administrative work that kept the organization afloat to the history work to, you know, the diving and searching, the screening of logistics, all that. So every piece of that puzzle was required to make that happen. And so I encourage all of our members, if they can, to attend those events just because it is, it just shows the impact that you are creating. And, you know, there's a, it, it makes you feel good yeah. to to know that this mission has been accomplished and this promise has been kept. But there's all sorts of other emotions that you you have as well while you're sitting there with those families and they express their gratitude to the work that everybody on the team did. And yeah, I just can't put it all into words. It's it's amazing though. I bet. Is Project Recover focused on aviators? Great question. That's, we're not. We look for a lot of aviators because as you can imagine, it's easier to find a lost aircraft that's been missing for decades than it is just an individual. But we also search for prisoners of war that were executed in the history of the UDT and SEAL teams, there's three that have not been recovered, and we know that they were captured off a of Yap, transported to Palau, where they were executed, and we've narrowed down their execution and internment site. We're still getting it closer and closer. We're not quite there yet. But aviators is most of our work just because that's the easiest information to get, if you will, the lowest hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. But it, we, we don't only focus on aviators. Okay. We have found a part of the USS Abner Reid, which Part of it was blown off and 70 sailors were lost up off the coast of Alaska. The Navy determined they will rest where they are, buried at sea, according to naval tradition. They don't expect that they'll be disturbed, so they're going to stay there. We find a lot of stuff, too, that we're not looking for, as you can imagine, just spending time in, in these places. But uh, Cortez's gold? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not looking for gold, and we haven't found any gold. But okay. uh, we found ancient sites all, all over, mm-hmm. on land and in water. We found many different sunken vessels underwater. We found former enemy aircraft as well um, and former enemy ships. What's the protocol on that? Do you let those countries Yeah, so anytime we find anything of significance, we we document it and we turn it over to, of course, the host nation. But if it's something like that, that it was, you know, if we're doing something World War II, if it was Japanese or German or British allies as well, we'll inform those nations typically through the embassy, so through the State Department. Okay, very interesting. Now, if you find a wreck in a Palau jungle versus in the atolls or wherever off coast, is the only difference essentially that you have to wear scuba for some of it and not for the other? I mean, they all, each have their own challenges, I'm guessing, but what's yeah. different about an underwater recovery versus a jungle recovery? You, you hit it. As you can imagine, yeah. recovery underwater is a lot more complicated. I bet. But believe it or not, technology underwater is advancing a lot faster than some of the stuff that we're doing in land. Hmm. Um, We're trying different drone technology and sensors on those drones over jungle. But, boy, the jungle 
really likes to hide stuff. Difficult to move in. I still say the best thing that you have is your boots and a machete and an old school compass. I mean, I've been and really think jungle or GPS just isn't working. The canopy's blocking it out. And so the search side of things can be really, really complicated. And then access to the area, if it's deep in the jungle, can make a recovery challenging. But at least you're not having to worry about how you're going to breathe, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so um, you know, and you're not dredging. Usually it's kind of what most people would think of as a traditional archaeological site. So you're gridding it out and you're digging that way and screening off on the side. It's not much different for an underwater site. We're doing the same thing. We're gridding it, but we're using a big dredge system. So we're sucking everything up within that grid, bringing it to a barge or vessel or whatever that we're on, and then we're screening it through quarter-inch mesh, looking for all that important information, whether it's artifacts or human remains or anything that can help us with the identification. Yeah. And we talked about at the very end when there's closure, the ceremony and the emotion of that. If there are remains discovered on site, are there certain protocols that are followed yeah. there? Is there some certain, hey, everybody stop, you know, kind of thing? What, what's that like? Well, finding remains is, yeah, I mean, that's success. So that's the, you know, there's different levels to it. I think I'll actually, I'll, I'll even rewind a little bit because I say people within our organization go through three phases of membership. The first one is, is I want to be a part of this organization and aligns with my values. It seems like the right thing to do. And so they commit through going through the interview process and becoming a member, and that takes some time. So now, okay, now you're a member. And then at some point, you're going to be on a mission, and there's going to be a discovery. And that could be the very first mission, like my mission, <laughs> like my case, or it could be a decade down the road. But whenever that occurs, now it's real. You know, this site has been missing for decades, and now we have found it. And so, one, it makes all that blood, sweat, and tears worth it. It's like, wow, we finally did it. But then you know families are going to have answers, and they probably don't even know that we're looking. I mean, there's been plenty of times that we were looking for somebody for a decade or two and find it, and the family had no idea we were even putting in the effort. And so then that's the second phase. It's like, wow, this is finally, this, this is real. And then that third phase is the recovery occurs. You get to bear witness to these memorials, and and then it's life-changing and there's no turning back from there. And so there's different steps along that line. The discovery of the site is you get a flood of emotion, like we finally did it. And then the recovery can take a lot of time as well. And, and there's cases when we've been on sites and recoveries occurred and no, no human remains to find <laughs> for whatever reason. I mean, that could be a number of things. But you know you have to find those remains to, to get them home. And so it's cliche, but it often happens that it's the last day of the planned mission where you're working, 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 we're not having success, and then boom, you find what you're looking for on that last day, whether it's a search part of it or finding the remains, anything like that. But again, that's just another flood of emotion where, oh my goodness, here we are. And as you can imagine, most people aren't familiar with handling human remains. And so that's just an emotional kind of overwhelming event in itself. And for the most part, it's not grotesque or anything like that. It's their skeletal remains, and it's just a lot. And yeah. so not only do you have that part of it, then you have the, everything behind this mission and everything it took to get there mm-hmm. that's just overwhelming you or, or flooding your, your, your mind at that moment. And then ultimately it's success. So you know these are going to go through the identification process, and now this case is going to be closed. Will you ever close a case if you find, let's say, an airplane that you can read the tag, as you said, and you know it was missing on a certain day, being flown by a certain crew? If there are no remains, though, can we still tell that family, 
This case is closed? No. Really? You can't, unfortunately. Yeah, the recovery has to happen. And so some of the cases that we have found the aircraft and there weren't remains within the crash site, then we have to figure out what, what happened to them. Were they but if it's in 100 feet of water... Yeah. Upside down, and it's clear that they crashed. I, again, I'm trying I'm to think if there's, it, if there's been one of those, but we've had some on land, and we think that they were recovered or moved by the enemy at the time or, or whomever, mm-hmm. and then what happened to them, and, and we don't okay. know. And since, since you can't be 100%, they can't close the case. And so until they can be 100%. 100%. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Now, and we owe it to the families. To be yeah, 100%. oh, I get it. Yeah. I get it, right? Because yeah. if I were told that, hey, we think we found where your brother last was, but we don't mm-hmm. have any physical proof, yeah. right? The family's going to hold out yeah. hope. Yeah, uh, and if you know, if you're filling that hope with they hit their head and they have amnesia and they're living another right. life somewhere, well, now that story still has merit. And yeah. Maybe they got out of the plane and they they were rescued by natives and they're they're living another life or or something like that. And so. Uh, yeah, so we have to be 100%. We've talked a lot about World War II. Yeah. Uh, is this also Korea, Vietnam? Uh, yeah, so we, we've executed missions all the way back to World War II. We've done Vietnam. We've done Desert Storm. We haven't done Korea yet, although we're building some more cases around Korea. Korea is an access issue. Yeah. Uh, geopolitical stuff uh, impacts our work, unfortunately. But we are looking at cases that we could potentially access in and around the Korean Peninsula or losses up there. But honestly, we take our mission wherever the science and evidence takes us. One thing that we do that the Department of Defense doesn't do is we can investigate and search for training losses. So a number of service members that were lost in our Great Lakes and our mountains off of our coast on training events are not necessarily designated missing in action because of the context of their loss Uh and inaction part. So they put in the efforts to find them and recover them when the incident occurred, and at some point they have to turn that off. Well, DPAA, that's not part of their charter. They only have MIAs. Well, obviously, those that are missing from training are just as missing to their families as somebody that was lost in combat. And so we add those cases to our database, and if we get enough information, then we'll, we'll execute on those as well. So we have worked off of our coasts in our own country here in the United States looking for service members that were lost in training events as well. How is the workload as far as are there more cases that you wish you could pursue if you either had more time or people or resources, or are you pretty much able to keep up with what you have at that point in time? No, we want to execute more. Really? That's what we're driving toward. So I want every case in that database, all 700, all 3,000 of those, we want to take action on those and our limiting factors resources as a nonprofit. During COVID, when a lot of stuff shut down because... Mm -hmm. We have an international mission, and we couldn't travel internationally. We weren't sitting on our hands, so we were continuing to do research. We were developing our protocols. We created a model that is scalable, and and since we've tested it. So we modulate our teams so that we can send multiple teams into the field at the same time. So we can run parallel missions all over the world, whatever it is. And so right now we're executing... 10 to 14 missions a year, hmm. and I want to get that to 30 between us and our primary partners, and we can do that. We have the capability to it. We have the expertise and the people to do it. It's just a matter of resources. Yeah. And what is the source for your resources? Is it private yeah. contributions, yeah. companies? We are a charity, and so we rely on the generosity of the public for the most part. Really? So people donating to make this mission happen, and not everybody can go 
you know, to the other side of the world or uh, explore the ocean floor for those that are missing or take off to the jungle somewhere. But most people can support from their couch and every penny counts. So individual philanthropists, big and small, support our mission. We're growing our corporate partnerships. We're really working on that. And of course, we seek out grants. And then we are a partner of the Department of Defense. So they come to us for contracts from time to time. Because even if you volunteer your time, you still have to get there. You have to be fed, housed, and diving or bushwhacking is probably not cheap either. It's not a cheap mission, unfortunately. I wish it was. We have moved away from, you know, when I started, it was just our one team and we were doing one mission a year. And, you know, at the end of it, we'd circle up and take out our wallets and say, you owe this, you owe this, you owe this. And we just split it that way. For the last decade or so, we've been able to make sure that we cover down on the cost. So the biggest gift that our members are giving is their time and their expertise, but we're getting them to the other side of the world. We're feeding them and lodging them and things like that. But as you said, it's not a cheap mission, especially when you start doing stuff underwater and moving things around underwater. It gets really expensive. We've got to move all that gear to the other side of the world and maintain it and execute Mm -hmm. the mission and get everybody home safely. And unfortunately, I wish it was a lot cheaper than it is, but we're working on it. Well, if people are watching or listening and they maybe want to throw something in, uh, where can they go? ProjectRecover.org. That's the easiest way. You can go to ProjectRecover.org, learn all about our mission, read more about everything that we're doing, some of the specific cases, look at the history, all that. And, of course, they can make a donation through the website. And we're on the major social media platforms. So we're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Instagram. Those are the big ones that we, we spend most of our energy on. And the handles are something related to Project Recover. So if you search Project Recover, you're going to find us. Uh, We're we're the only ones out there. And there's different variants across the different platforms, so I definitely don't want to screw it up. But all of that is through our website, projectrecover.org. That's the place to go. And we want, of course, we want people to support our mission, Mm -hmm. but we also want to hear from families. If you have information related to a loved Uh one, we want to hear that. And we want to hear from people that want to be a part of the mission. So if they want to be volunteers, they can reach out to us through that and start the application process. The biggest thing I ask with that is, is please be patient. We're a volunteer-based organization, so there's one person handling all of these inquiries as far as being engaged, and so it takes some time. And we have a a pretty in-depth application process for our members. We want to make sure we're getting the right people on the team. You know, I can look at their resume and tell what expertise and stuff that they have, and but the biggest thing is fit with the team. I, I tell all of the people going through the process, I said, you know, after four weeks in the jungle, we're all going to hate each other. <laughs> but hopefully it's not after the second day that we're, we're yeah. going to throw it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, right, it's austere conditions. Yeah. It's probably uncomfortable in some ways uh, where you're living or what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, but like you said, such a drive for those of you who do it. Uh, that's amazing. And, I, you know, I challenge you to find one of our members that doesn't. Just yeah. absolutely love the time that we spend in the field. And it is. It's exhausting. It just beats you down after a few weeks. But I'm on a high when I come back from those missions. And, I mean, my mental health is through the roof, that's for sure. Absolutely. Well, you're part of something bigger than just your own existence. So yeah. that's got to be a good feeling. All this time, though, we've been talking really about the organization. And I think we left off with you in your squadron. <laughs> you got pulled into it. I think we skipped about 20 years in the middle there. Yeah. But you've been involved with this for a while. And, and what's your current role? I'm currently the president and CEO of Project Recovery. Oh, yeah. I should have mentioned that at the beginning. Well, it'll show it on your yeah. little name tag in the video. But did you just all of a sudden, I don't know, work your way up like you might in the in the military? Or yeah, you know, I just I went on my first mission and didn't know how I was going to contribute to the mission. Just you know, hey, I'm available. I'll, I'll lift heavy things if you need. You know, mm-hmm. whatever it takes. And and fell in love with the mission very very quickly. And um, then grew in the organization. So became a member and then quickly became a team lead. Missions, and then as the nonprofit grew, became a board member, 
And then a little over four years ago, when I finished my PhD, they asked me to take over as president and CEO. And actually, I was I was living here in San Diego. I was running the military veterans program at San Diego State when they asked me to. And I had already thought I had my dream job and didn't even think this would be a possibility. But here I am today. And speaking of that, if I can just brag on you a second, may I, <laughs> even though we just met? Yeah. So single parent. Yep. She passes away at age when you're 13. Right. You basically, I don't know what your situation there was, but you decided life isn't fair or whatever, and you run off, find your way into the Marine Corps as an enlisted Marine, find your way to the officer program, aviation, project recover, advanced degrees, and now you're a PhD? Yeah. Would you please run for some sort of office? We need people <laughs> like you in good places. Thank I mean, you. Come on. Thank you. My goodness. Well, yeah. congratulations. That's amazing. Appreciate it. What's the future for Project Recover? Yeah, well, we're we're just keeping on driving this mission forward and um, trying to provide answers to as many Gold Star and my families as we can. You know, five million families is not a small number, no. and these are family members that are not getting online and talking about their experience or anything like that. They're just suffering in silence, and so we owe it to them. And that promise doesn't have an expiration date, so we're going to keep on doing everything that we can to get that MIA number down as close to zero as possible. And that includes scaling the organization. So that's a big effort right now is solidifying the organization and taking it into the future so we can continue this work. And, you know, people like might think, well, it, it's a limited future or something like that. And I hope it is. That would be mission success if that was the case. But at the same time, you know, you, you saw the fires in Hawaii. At one point, there was like 1,000 people missing the wars in Ukraine, people missing all over the place. And I hope that, you know, I work myself out of a job and we don't have to do this at some point in the future, but I'm just going to keep on working. And so is everybody else on the team. We're going to keep on working until we are at a job, that's for sure. At the top, I talked about something like 81,000 missing in action. And then at some point you mentioned cases. And did you say about 7,000 or 3,000? What was that part? We have in our database, we have 700 cases associated with about 3,000 missing Americans. And that's actionable information okay. on our side. So are the other 78,000 just either there's no information or not enough details or what's Sometimes what's it's not enough details. There's many of those cases, unfortunately. And sometimes the cases like we don't have the capability to get there yet, hmm. but that is rapidly changing. Really? We are going deeper than we ever were in the water before, which really expands our search areas. We located a, a B-24 a few years ago prior to COVID, and then the Navy Experimental Dive Unit just executed a recovery on that. It's the wow. deepest underwater recovery of MIAs that's occurred. How um, deep was it? About 220 or 30 feet, but they can go down to well below that. So it was a good case to test this capability. And it's perfect because... Mark Molina at the University of Delaware on our team just found five B-24s at the end of last year, and they're about 300 and something feet. And so those are ideal cases to execute these recoveries on and bring bring more of these guys home. So the technology keeps on advancing, which means more and more of those cases are going to become options for us to execute. And so, you know, we have that many cases in our database, but we keep on adding to it all the time. That number keeps on growing. You know, there are going to be cases that People, unfortunately, just are never going to be from the circumstances of their loss. But that's not going to stop us. We're just going to keep on working until we get to the point where we just don't have any cases left. And you talked about how difficult the jungle can be. So I'm maybe of the mistaken mindset that most of the terrain in the world has been mapped or at least looked at or satellite Mm -hmm. photographed or whatever. Where are we with the ocean floor? I mean, is there not a giant 
Google database of, well, let's yeah. just look off the coast of Palau and, oh, look, you know, because you talked about yeah. one centimeter resolution. Yeah. Does that all exist somewhere? Do we have the whole ocean mapped yet? <laughs> I wish we did. If, if we did, no? I'd spend a lot of time looking at it. Yeah. Not to that resolution. We can map out mountains and stuff like that, but there's a lot underwater that hasn't been mapped to that detail. Okay. Uh, a lot. But it probably, does it change? I would think maybe either with... The ocean floor? Yeah. Oh, there's elements. There's certain places that, okay. that do. But for the most part, especially the deep stuff, you know, I don't think it changes too much. Mm-hmm. Not that it's going to put us out of a job or anything like that. Yeah, there's still a lot of mapping that needs to occur. So Project Recover is going to keep after it as long as anyone's missing. What about you? Are you going to stay involved? I'm guessing I can see the passion in your eyes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I have a personal mission statement of uh, having a positive impact on as many people as I can across my lifetime. And and this is one of the spheres of influence that has allowed me to impact people. And so it's very, very near and dear to my heart. And so I'm going to keep on putting energy into it until I can't. Well, since we're interviewing on Election Day, I'll go back to my earlier statement. I think you need to expand that, something a bit more public. Well, I got two votes then. Right. <laughs> That's right. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, what about, um, golly, I mean, are you, is that a, dare I ask, is that the only thing you're doing? Is that a, a paid capacity now, or, or do you have to still share your time? You said volunteers have day jobs. Yeah, I'm one of the paid employees. Okay. We only have a handful of paid employees at Project Recovery, really, to keep the organization afloat, yeah. the administrative side of things. I wish they could just pay me to go to the field all the time, but that's not the gist of my job. I do it when I can, that's for sure, because that's where the true joy is. Yeah. But you know, leading the organization and having a vision and, and executing that vision is my responsibility, and um, working to scale it is part of that. But I do have my fingers in all sorts of pots, if you will. One of the big things that I work on is military and higher education. That's my research and academic world is related to that. And so I still work with a lot of universities as well as veterans and family members that are seeking out higher education options to ensure that they get what the goals that they're seeking and that they can go off and, and continue to impact the world in a positive way. And so that's something else that I'm truly passionate about. I've had the honor of working with thousands of veterans in the higher education space, and it's something that continues to bring me joy. And so I, I still do that. I work with other nonprofits that, that work with our military in the outdoor space. So my wife and I live up in Bend, Oregon. There's a reason that we live there. We're outdoor enthusiasts, and, and we know that the benefits that spending time in the outdoors provides. And so as a nonprofit guy and an outdoor guy and a veteran, I've been asked to, to support some organizations like Higher Ground and Warriors and Quiet Waters and Travis Manning Foundation and others as they work with the military and, and try and um, help them excel as much as possible in the next right. phase of their life. Well, you have a heart of gold, and so I'm so glad to be able to share this time to unpack that story and what Project Recover is doing because, like you said, it's just it's so right in every way, just bringing closure, bringing our folks home. And so, gosh, thank you. Thank you for on behalf me. of uh, I love sharing the project story. recovery yeah, and everyone who's listening and watching. Before I let you go, though, uh, we, this being the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we do have a tradition. We like yeah. to ask about call signs. So Derek Abbey, somebody came up with Cosmo. We've had a Cosmo on the show before, yeah. but what can you tell us about how that call sign was bestowed on you? So you know Cosmopolitan Magazine. So I did underwear ads in Cosmopolitan from November and December of I can't remember what now I'm joking. Am I supposed to believe? Okay. That, that, was, that was a joke. <laughs> you, you called it before I was able to. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I wish it was kind of like that. No, uh, on my very first deployment, I was leaving the RAG, jumping in the squadron. We're deploying. Everybody knows we're heading to austere conditions. We're very likely going to war. And so a lot of people are getting motivated and shaving their head. And 
And I'm like, I've been in the Marine Corps for 10 years already or something like that. And I'm like, I'm not shaving my head. I've shaved my head enough. So I, I just let my hair grow. And, and we were. We were living in tents in Kuwait. And so I was on the night page, and they were still calling me Abby Normal. Normal was the call sign that I had coming out of the rag. And so uh, the war kicked off. We're fighting. And one night, come back from a mission and had an Air Force trial hall. And we're sitting, eating mid-rats. And two senior guys were sitting across the table from me. And they're like, your hair is out of control. You <laughs> For look a like, Marine, especially. <laughs> yeah. They're like, you look like Kramer from Seinfeld. And you saw immediately, that's it. And so before I got out of Kuwait, they had a call sign review, and it was either going to be Cosmo or Kramer. And, you know, in my head, I'm like, I really hope it's Cosmo. But I'm not going to say anything because right. if I say something, <laughs> it would definitely be Kramer. And they voted, and it ended up being Cosmo, and, and that was it. And it yeah. stuck. And so it definitely could have been a lot worse, that's for sure. Well, so, certainly. <laughs> you can always pretend it's for uh, Cosmic or some other. Yeah. yeah. Uh, some well, other I, had a, I had an XO that used to say he never got it right. He would always call me Cosmos. Hey, Cosmos. He would say, and he had a, <laughs> a sniff. He hey, Cosmos. And <laughs> So we oh, always joke boy. about that, but yeah, but yeah that's how Fantastic. I got the call sign. All right, Cosmo. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. What, though, before I let you go, did I not ask you about Project Recover and, and, and your participation maybe? or and, and as part of that, tell us again where people can go to throw something in or help out or maybe even volunteer. The thing I'd like to highlight really about my personal involvement with Project Recover and share with the community and really try and challenge people is when I was – that young enlisted Marine, you know, we had ceremonies. We always had ceremonies. We had the ball or other gatherings, and we always had the POW MIA table, and they'd acknowledge that. And in my head, I just, you know, say a silent prayer, and but I never really fathomed that I could do anything about it. It just seemed so much, and it still seems like so much when I look back. But now I've been involved with literally hundreds of discoveries. And it took a lot to get there. But that effort was just that. It just took some effort, the commitment to do something. And so I just want to challenge people to to do something to make their communities better, the country better, their family, whatever it happens to be, whatever your cause is. Mm -hmm. And it might seem insurmountable, but how do you climb a mountain? Just one step at a time. time. You know, it, it all starts with one step. And I would have never fathomed you know, that young Lance Corporal Abbey would be sitting here talking to you about this mission and the impact that we've created, but but here we are. Yeah. And so if, if people can hear about this story, and, and maybe this is the mission they want to be a part of, and I hope that that's the case, but it doesn't happen to be. It could be their kid's local kickball team, and they want to invest in that. Then invest in it. If it seems like it's too far away, just take the first step and, yeah. and go after it. And and I hope that, that people take some sort of motivation from this message and they use it to create something better in their community and our nation. And that's just the biggest thing that I hope for. And, of course, if they want to read more or learn more about Project Recover, projectrecover.org is where it's at. You can read about our work a lot more than probably you have time to to read. And, of course, they can support our organization through the website as well and then follow us on all the social media. Well, it was my hope that uh, having you on the show would help Project Recover certainly get some of the message out and uh, shed a little light on it, but I would also be uh, happy to go to the website and uh, make a donation on behalf of my listeners and viewers because I believe in what you're doing. So I just want to, again, thank you for your time. Thank you for what you're doing and for your passion. And uh, certainly thank you for coming on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Thank you for having me, Dylan. 
This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation-themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.